God created you for this singular purpose, and that is for Him to pour out grace upon you, and that your response would be one of magnifying the Lord. And it is that type of relationship that God has called us into, and wanting us daily to live out. The only problem is, it means that we go through waters and rivers and fire, and that we By humbling ourselves, allow God to pour out His grace. Amen, church? Woohoo, yeah. (laughs) Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. But I want to focus now. Last week I preached on prayer. I want to preach on prayer again. And I want to look at this example of Elijah. But we're going to see that it is not so much a singular event that God responds to. In order to bring revival, it is really who the people of God are, or, or better, who the people of God become. And here is my prayer, that the people of God here in this church, that the people of God in Metro Orlando, that the people of God in America become this, a praying people. A people so utterly dependent upon God because it is there that God pours out His grace. Right, church? It's there that God pours out His grace. Right, church? Yes. Amen. That's where I want to be. I want to love... I want us to love prayer. I want us to be a praying people. I want us to be constantly seeking opportunities for prayer. Here's what you find when you study revival throughout church history. They loved to pray. There was something that got stirred up in the people of God. And they prayed. And they would just spontaneously gather. And they would pray because they loved prayer. They didn't just love prayer, but they realized how utterly, they, utterly dependent they were upon prayer. So as as awesome, I think, as these gatherings in D.C. are, I think we need to be careful when people tout them as, if we do this, then God will usher in revival. It is rarely a singular event. As a matter of fact, I don't know of a single event that triggered revival. It is who the people of God are or become. And revival and awakening is poured out. When Martin Luther... Nailed the 95 theses on the Wittenberg door. Revival didn't happen the next day. There were a lot of things that God did. And a lot of people, not just Martin Luther, a lot of people that God brought into this to usher in revival and awakening. And this is what we're going to see in our day, I believe. It's not going to be a single event. It's not going to be the, the result of a million people gathered in D.C. It is going to be The result of what the church becomes and allows, therefore, God to do in them and through them. Elijah had to experience this. He had to become a man of prayer. And though he was set up with disappointment, he realized that it was not this one event on Mount Carmel that was going to trigger revival. It is who the people of Israel would become. So I want us to look at this passage again. It's chapter, first, first Kings chapter 18, starting with verse 41. And I realize I'm, I'm jumping into the end of the story. Uh, forgive me if I don't repeat what I mentioned last week. I want to stay 
to my time. We have communion tonight, so I want to be sensitive to the time. So I have about 40 minutes or less, and I need to cover these things on prayer that God has really burdened my heart. And again, before I read this, church, as we go through this time of prayer this week, and we're praying for revival... Jim had mentioned that, you know, that, that's got to start here. God has got to revive his church before the church becomes the church God needs it to become so that there is an awakening. So we need to be a praying people. And we're going to talk about that tonight. Verse 41, And Elijah said to Ahab, Go, this is after he killed the 450 prophets of Baal, which immediately followed that the falling of fire upon his sacrifice, you remember. Go and eat and drink, for there is the sound of a heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink. May I just add, eat and drink, not like eat, drink, and be merry. Eat and drink because he had a long drive ahead of him. and It was very prophetic. Get ready now. Be prepared because rain is coming. I'm going to challenge you, church, be prepared because revival is coming. There is a sound of heavy rain coming. And as it says, Ahab went off to eat and drink, not to to indulge in just pleasures, but to be prepared. As he was prepared, then Elijah climbed to the top of Mount Carmel, bent down to the ground and put his face between his knees. Go and look toward the sea, he told his servant. And he went up and he looked. There's nothing there, he said. Seven times Elijah said, go back. The seventh time the servant reported a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds. The wind rose. A heavy rain came on and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. The power of the Lord came upon Elijah. And tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. The sound of heavy rain. The sound of heavy rain. This is what he says This is what Ahab says was, excuse me, that Elijah said was coming, the sound of heavy rain. Now, I mentioned last week that that was very, very true. There was a sound of heavy rain, but probably hundreds of miles away, just not there. And so we do speaking was very true, but it was very prophetic. That rain could have gone anywhere, but it came there. It was time for the drought to end. Now, the drought came because Israel was in rebellion. Deuteronomy 28, one of the curses is, if my people remain unrepentant, if my people remain in their sin, if they turn to other gods, and certainly Israel had done that, Ahab and Jezebel had ushered in this, a, a, a huge escalation of the worship of Baal and all that, pan, that the Canaanite pantheon. And because of, of this truly, truly occultic religion being spread throughout Israel, God said, enough. I need to curse these people. This is the Deuteronomy 28 curse. And so God brought this curse. God brought this drought. And so there was a 
a sense of certainty that Elijah has. And I mentioned chapter 18, verse 1, where he says, go and present yourself to Ahab. I will send rain on the land. So Elijah knew that there was rain coming. Uh, He may not have known exactly when that was coming. Maybe there was just this sense of prophetic, uh, a prophetic sense or prophetic urgency that he sensed in his spirit. He certainly was a righteous man. He walked with God. And and I'm, I'm mentioning this not to so much put Elijah on this pedestal that we say, wow, you know, like the apostles, he just did so many awesome things that we, he's just beyond me. And, and the Bible in James, as I mentioned last week, that, that is not the case. A, Elijah was a man just like you and me. He, he was subject to emotions that would seek to control him. You read about that in chapter 19. I'm not going to. But This was the type of man, he was righteous and he was passionate in following God. And he obeyed God no matter what he was told to do. Even standing before Ahab, there's a drought coming. And it's not going to end until I say so. That's pretty bold. To then summon Ahab to meet him and challenge Ahab's prophets of Baal to a duel... And by the way, he, he asked also that the prophets of, uh, of Asherah would be there. Prophetess of Asherah would be there. And he said no. They, they, Queen Jezebel apparently said no. And only the prophets of Baal came. And so, as these prophets of Baal come, and they enter into this duel, they completely fail. And the people shout... Yahweh, Yahweh, he is God. Not Baal, Yahweh, Yahweh, he is God. And so what I'm saying is Elijah had this prophetic sense that now was the time that God was going to send this heavy rain. There was this sense of revival, if you will, in the air. And God was wanting to send the rain to demonstrate that, that, that this was the very thing that God wanted. God wanted to do something new in Israel. I believe that God wants to do something new in America. We have truly, as a nation, we have lost our way. People are saying that we are quickly becoming a post-Christian nation. It, Europe has already beat us there. I remember when my family visited Europe, they, we, we, drove, we were in Holland for the most part. And as we drove through Holland on their uh, bus, whatever, I, it goes from nation, goes through nations, inter-bus way, uh, train. It was, it was amazing. You would see so many churches, but they were all empty. There was such a spiritual, there is such a spiritual dearth that has come upon the nations of Europe in our day. Now, I believe that God is doing things. And though, uh, though churches are being planted, they're just not going into these dead cathedrals. Uh, they're going other places. They're purchasing bars and turning them into churches. I mean, something good has to be done with those buildings, I suppose. But there is revival, I believe, quickly coming to America. And and what I, I am asking you as a church to do is, especially this week, that you seek God to give you this prophetic 
sense in your spirit, you acquire it by faith, that God is bringing revival to America, that God is bringing revival to his church, that God is going to spread by his spirit into these neighborhoods throughout our city, throughout our state, our nation. And, and we must believe that this is the heart of God. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven. And I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. This is certainly what Ahab needed in his day. The land needed to be healed. And so there was this prophetic sense. There is the sound of heavy rain in the air. And I'm asking you, church, as you pray that half hour every day this week, that you allow God to stir up within you that prophetic sense that there is a sound of heavy rain in the air, and it's coming here. I know of no revival that was not preceded by prayer. I don't know of one. Now, I cannot make, we cannot make revival happen. But we can certainly lay the groundwork. And that has to be done in prayer. It is done no other way. Do you hear me, church? No other way than the people of God pressing in. We also notice that here is Elijah as he is praying and in, in, in truly a, a desperate position, if you will, or, or a posture of prayer that demonstrates this sense of desperation because he has his face between his knees. I don't even know if, if I could do that. Just, and, he, and he was probably as older, older than me, and yet he was able to. What a, what a demonstration of humbling himself before God. Urgent. There was a sense of urgency to this. He knew revival needed to come now, God. Now. Begin it now. And that was going to start first with the rain. And so he prayed. He told his servant, go, go check. His, it says the servant went up. So that meant that Elijah was not at the tippy-tippy top of Mount Carmel. He was at a place, though, I imagine, that was somewhat secluded. And he sought the face of God. And his servant went to that place where he could look out around and Time after time, as Elijah was praying and seeking God, I mean, I mean, how many of you have prayed seven times that God would do something? Honestly, typically after two or three times, don't you? We want to give up, don't we? I mean, God just doesn't seem to be answering. The 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 servant went up to the top of the mountain to look out. And it was clear there was no rain clouds anywhere. How discouraging. Six times he came back and he said, you know what, Elijah, nothing. There's not even, and Elijah probably, I mean, just like a, a, a little bit of a cloud. And Elijah, there's nothing. You, you almost hear the servant saying, Elijah, you should just give up. What is the sense in this? No, 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 no. Go up there one more time. And can you imagine the servant? Oh, really? Again? Okay. All right. And he goes to the top. And it was that seventh time. 
that seventh time he sees it. It's only the size of a hand. In the the distant horizon as it's rising over the Mediterranean Sea and it's dark. And he goes down and he says, Elijah, Elijah, you're not going to believe this. And maybe Elijah turns and says, maybe that's been the problem. We don't believe this. We need to. Elijah was. And seven times, go check, go check, go check, go check, go check, go check, go check. Until finally the servant comes back and says, there's a cloud. The rain's coming. And there was an excitement, I'm sure, that gripped the two of them. And he said, Ahab says to him, you need to go tell Ahab right now. Saddle up, buddy, because the rain is coming. And so as he does this, I want us to know that when we pray, we need to pray and pray and believe and not give up. Now, can can I just say that as we as a church are moving forward and probably in the next month and a half, less than two months, I would say that we're going to be moving into our new facility. And I believe that God has something new for us. It's not just a new facility. God has something new for us in ministering to the surrounding neighborhoods. I mentioned to you several months ago, though, it is not a building any more than it is a singular event that God uses to usher in a revival, okay? But I believe that God is wanting to use this as a means to an end. I believe that God used the 95 Theses, tacking them to the Wittenberg door, But that was only the first step or part of the first step to bring in this awesome reformation. I can remember, though, back in December, as we pulled together a dozen or more people, and we said, okay, here's an opportunity. There are two places. One is uh, 3,600 square feet. The other is 4,000 square feet. And if we were to do build-out in this to create a sanctuary and various rooms, etc., bathrooms, and, you know, what would it look like? And so we pull our thoughts together and we, we put diagrams up and we selected one and we, I wrote it out and I sent it to them. And they said, you know what, to do that, it's going to cost $150,000. Now, I had this sense in my spirit, I know they're going to turn this down. I know they're not going to want to do it because there was a desire in their part to help out when a place comes in. But this, this was going to be a lot. I knew it. And lo and behold, they sent us back. In, in essence, it was a big no. You're talking a lot of money. But I remember as I was standing before the group, I said, you know what? I need to tell you something. Is We're putting a lot of time into this. And I think we need to, but I I sense very strongly in my spirit, they're going to turn this down. And wouldn't it be like God to open the door to this facility in the Brio Business Center that the Brink Security used to, to, that they used it, it's about 5,000 square feet. Wouldn't it be like God to move us into a place like that? 
for him to be able, you know, as we're trying hard and planning and, 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 and seeing what God can do here, and he directs us completely in, in a new way into, this, into another facility, and that's exactly what God did. But I told him, I said, you know what, they're going to have to bring their price so far down. It's, I, I just can't see them. Well, I didn't say I can't see them doing it. I said, God would have to do a miracle. But it would just seem like God to close the door here and move us into a place that is even beyond what we have been asking for or planning for. And so God closed the door to bring us into a new place, a better place, a bigger place. Now, I I say that because sometimes when we pray, even seven times, we can pray little bitty prayers, but they're within our level of faith, if you will. And tonight, I'm going to challenge you. There is not just a rain coming. There is a heavy rain that is coming, church. There is a heavy rain. And I'm going to ask that you pray for that heavy rain to come in your homes. I'm going to ask that you pray that heavy rain will come in your neighborhoods. I'm going to pray that you, I'm going to ask that you pray that that heavy rain will come all around you into your businesses, into your relationships, into these neighborhoods surrounding where our church is going to go. That God would do something powerful even beyond what we are asking for or imagining. Do you believe that our God can do that? church. That is the attitude that we need to have, a resounding amen, because God responds to that type of faith. That is the type of faith that burned within Elijah. There's nowhere that scripture says, and the Lord said to Elijah, now I'm sending a heavy rain. Now, that could have happened, but all that we can tell is there is this strong prophetic sense in, in Elijah's spirit, now is the time. He knew it was coming. He knew rain was coming. God told him that. He didn't know the when, but now, it's now. It's now. God wants to expand our prayers, church. And so the rain comes, but we get this sense that Ahab is running ahead of the rain. I don't, I've never ridden a chariot, okay? I, I, I've seen chariot races. Uh, what's the name of that movie? Help me out. Ben-Hur, there we go. Okay, the famous chariot race. And when you, when you pull chariots through mud, it is like almost impossible to go through. As a matter of fact, battles are written in which God caused it to rain because the enemy of Israel had chariots and they were immobilized because of the rain. And so I can't help but wonder, it seems that Ahab's chariot was riding or running ahead of the heavy rain that was coming, but who was running ahead of Ahab? Elijah was. That, that might seem... Curious might seem a little insane, honestly, because Jezreel was 20 plus miles away from Mount Carmel. He had to run 20 plus miles. Has anyone here ever run more than 20 miles? Raise your hand. Good for you, Cole. I had a feeling you might have done that. I never have. Um... What, what, an, what an exhaust, I mean, that just exhausts me to think about it. 
And Elijah, who is my age or older, I want to emphasize to you, it says the power of the Lord came upon him and then he ran. Okay, maybe if the power of the Lord came upon me, I could do this. Maybe I'd be able to get beyond mile number two. Maybe. Um, that's only with the power of the Lord. So the power of the Lord comes upon him. But we have to ask the question, why does he do this? I mean, isn't that a curious thing that he does? He runs ahead of the chariot. Now, I just want to let you know, uh, you can look at, what is it, First Kings chapter 1, Adonijah, David's son, is wanting to become king. He tries to do so secretly at Hebron. And so he has 50 men run ahead of his chariot. They're servants, perhaps warriors, but they're servants. They do so to honor the king and to, in essence, say, I am your man. I am your defender. I go before you and I will protect you. And, and there's this sense of Elijah trying to communicate to Ahab, I'm your servant. With this anticipation that when Ahab finally reaches Jezreel, he will persuade Queen Jezebel to turn from her wicked ways so that God would be able to usher in this revival. Ahab, he, he witnesses this fire fall from, fall from heaven. 450 prophets of Baal are slain with the sword. He doesn't stop it. There, you, you almost get the sense Ahab is in this process of being convinced. But as soon as he meets Jezebel, what happens? She is so angry. And it overcomes Ahab. Ahab, by the way, if you read through his life, he truly is a weak leader. Jezebel is a manipulator, a dominant figure, and she rules him. And Elijah has been praying and, and really doing whatever he can to help usher in this revival. So here's my point here. You pray. But you don't just pray for revival. You've got to do it. You've got to do whatever you need to do. You, we need, as a church, we are going to need to evangelize. We don't just pray that people will get saved. We've got to do the groundwork, church. We, gotta, we have to reach out to them. We have to pray for the families. When we go door to door, I'm going to encourage you, pray big prayers. As you walk up to a door in your spirit, you just pray, God, rescue this family if they don't know Jesus. When you're speaking with them at the door and you show them the card, got Jesus, and then Jesus says, come unto me all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You can ask, can I just ask you this question? Has Jesus given you this type of rest? Do you feel that maybe you're on this side of the picture? There's two pictures. And the other, the, the picture on the one side is an apartment building, and it's just, devastated, ripped apart. And you, you're going to come across homes and the devil has destroyed and leveled many of these homes. You know, there's a little passage in, in Proverbs that says, lizards are found in king's palaces. And God's going to call you to be little lizards moving and into these homes. And maybe you don't like this analogy, but God is going to bring you into these homes. Because the lizard in king's palace, you would hardly think, wow, a king and, and yet a lizard? I remember when there was a, a gecko in our house and he was climbing the wall. And my, I, I told the kids, don't touch your mom. 
just freak out. So we're going to just be really quiet, but we're going to try and get rid of him. But he hid behind our piano. What are we going to do now? I said, you know, uh, Zach and, and, and Jim were there. And I said, you know what, guys? We were watching a movie, okay? And I said, okay, turn the movie back on. Because we're just going to have to wait for this gecko to come out. You know when the gecko came out? When my wife was downstairs. That's when he decided to come out, and she freaks out, and the, the gecko climbs up the wall, and he, he does this, okay? And he climbs on the ceiling, and we were finally able to knock him down. No, we didn't stomp on him in all of, I won't go into details. We were able to capture him, and we threw him out the door. And ladies, I know you wanted to hear that. But you would, you would think, man, a, a lizard in a king's palace? Really? How does this happen? But that's the truth. You, kings can't keep them out any more than the devil is going to be able to keep you out of those homes who need to be rescued by the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are going to be bringing in this hope that's going to set people free. Because many of them are going to answer that, got hope? Their answer is going to be no. And the only hope that they will ever be able to find was only in Jesus. So we're going to pray. We're going to pray. But we're going to also have to do. Elijah did. Elijah did. And this week, as Jim has shared with you, we're going to be having 24-7 prayer. This is kind of like a pilot program, if you will. Jim brought up the idea. I said, you know what? Let's do that. Can I, can I confess something to you when Jim brought up the idea? There was something in me that was an objection. I, I was thinking way too practically, not in faith. And I said, Jim, we're going to find it really hard for people to fill in those time slots between one and five. Who's going to want to get up at those, at those hours and pray? When I look at the sheet, not what it looks like right now, but at, when I got it back, the time slots that filled up the quickest were those hours. And it's not because you guys are night owls either. Maybe for some of you, God wakes you up at a certain time in the night and you pray. Kudos. That's awesome. But the idea of this is not because, you know, we're just, it's, it's, it's a program. We're going to just, we're going to pray. But we are going to, this is a time to sacrifice. I want you to feel the sacrifice, especially you guys praying between 1 and 5. Thank you. You're probably sacrificing the most. I chose 11 o'clock. Okay. That, that, honestly, I was the last one to sign up last week, and so I looked at an available time. Okay, I'll pray at 11. That's my bedtime. But I'm going to pray. And anyways, it, it's only a little bit of a sacrifice. But thank you to you who are getting up early, and then you're probably going back to bed after you pray. Thank you for doing that. That is awesome. But what I'd like us to do is fill that up. Who has it right now? Can you just hold it up right now, Mary? Okay. I can see from a distance there's probably, what, eight or so time slots, maybe a few more, maybe a few less, seven. Look at that. I I didn't even have my glasses on. Uh, Seven time slots. I want to fill those up tonight. Before, Before we leave tonight, I want to see those filled up. And if... If we don't, then we're going to probably need to make some phone calls. But I want all of those, there's what then, uh, 48, 24 times 2, half hour, time slots available. We're going to, you're going to do this. If you signed up, like me, 11 o'clock, that means tomorrow night at 11 o'clock, 
I'm going to be praying for that half hour, but I'm going to do that for seven days through midnight or to midnight of next Saturday. So you understand that. But my point is this. This is an opportunity for us to sacrifice. There is just something in the heart of God that loves to see his people sacrifice. You know, we, we could just pray at our normal prayer times. I could just say, hey, this week, during your prayer time, just make sure that you're praying for at least half an hour and let's pray for revival. Could we do that? And we could. And, and, and we would probably pray for just the same amount of time. We, we could. But there's just something when a church says, you know what, I am willing to get down on my knees and I am willing to pray. When, when Jesus came to his disciples the night that he was betrayed, do you remember what he said when they were asleep? Could you not pray for one hour? Some of you right now are going over. You want to sign up one more time so you're praying for an hour. Thank you. That's okay if you do that. You can sign up for two time slots to, to make an hour. But I'm not asking that you do that, but you, you can, okay? Did I tell you that you can do that if you want? We have seven more so that we need to, yes, anyway. So, there's just something in the heart of God that loves to see his people. Can I ask you this? When a gift is given to you, and it means so much, maybe think of a time in which someone gave you a, a gift. And I'm remembering one, and I've mentioned it to you before, but the first year that my wife and I were married, for that Christmas, she gave me a quilt. Now, I'm not a quilty kind of guy. I'm not. But it was a large quilt for our bed, and it was beautiful. But what struck me the most, and when I saw this, it said to me how much time that she had put into this thing. And she, all, she did all of it under my nose. I didn't know anything about it. That was perhaps a miracle in itself. When you receive a gift and it means so much to you, isn't it usually a gift in which someone had to sacrifice, maybe even a lot, in order to pull it off? Maybe it was a planned birthday party. Uh, Brian. Where's Brian? Brian. I was impressed. Brian threw a birthday party for his dad. I've not known Brian to do something like that, but I can. the two whole days he was over at our house, he was baking those cakes, he was putting the signs together, he was doing the decorations. Some of you were helping. That's awesome. But Brian took... I was impressed. And I told Brian, I said, Brian, you could not have done something that meant more to your dad than this. That was awesome. And I know Cole was blessed by it. Cole felt loved. Why? Because you looked around, his son had pulled this off, and Brian's just not a party planner type of guy. He's not. But he wanted to bless his dad, and it said, I love you, dad, because when you looked around, couldn't couldn't you just sense the amount of time and, and that oatmeal cake, wasn't it? Oatmeal spiced cake? What was it, Cole? Oatmeal cake. It was awesome. And he, made, he didn't just make one, he made two, just to remind you. But when you get a gift and it makes you feel loved, it is almost always because you sense the sacrifice that's gone. God's heart, remember, we are made in the image of God. Sacrifice says to God, I love you. Do, do you see this? 
Inasmuch as we give gifts and it's, 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 it's a sacrifice that says, I love you, even so with the heart of God. When we are sacrificing, we are communicating to God, God, you are worth so much more than whatever I'm sacrificing. Time, money, whatever it is. When David was purchasing the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite, Arana wanted to just give it to the king and he says, I will not take something and give it to the Lord if it costs me nothing. And he bought it at a fair price. David wanted it to cost him something. And I'm, I'm encouraging you, let, let's take this week, let's take those time slots and let it cost you something. Because this is at the very heart of what I'm calling desperate prayer. And the reason why we are doing this is because, church, I'm telling you, there is the sound of heavy rain that is coming. And as a church, it, is, it only comes, Jesus' church, it will only come when His church is praying. It will not happen as a result of one event. It will happen because the church becomes a praying church and loves prayer. That's when it will happen. But it doesn't stop with prayer. You've got to do something about it. I, I, I'm not going to say much about this. Maybe in the back of your mind, some of you are asking, but wait a second, Pastor Mike. Revival didn't come right away, did it? As a matter of fact, Jezebel breathed out murderous threats uh, and Elijah got wind of it. He fell into a deep depression, ran for his life to Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb. And, <coughs> and consequently, he, he sought the face of God and God said, you know what? Excuse me, Elijah, I know that you have a plan A in your mind, but I have a plan B. And I needed to bring you here and have you do all of this because this is just the beginning. You're going to anoint a man by the name of Elisha. You're going to anoint a, a man to become king by the name of Jehu. And you're going to anoint a wicked man who will be used by me to carry out my plans to destroy Baalism. And all three of them I'm going to use to destroy Baalism in Israel. Because I must do this to rescue my people. So was Elijah God's man of power for the hour? He was, but he was only the very beginning. And God used three other men. And I'm sure he used others, but he used three other men. You see, God's not going to just use one man or one woman to bring in revival. He never does that. He uses his church unified to do this. There's, there's so much that is coming to my mind just on that subject. But I, I need to end with this because I have only a few more minutes. I want you to turn to Ezekiel 22. Depending on how much I can get through this tonight, I may tack it on for next week. Because I do want to be sensitive to the time. But Ezekiel 22. God has taken time in Ezekiel chapter 22, as we read, to highlight the sins of the leaders in Israel. The princes, the priests, 
the prophets, the officials. And, and he basically says they have, they have tried to justify their sin. And God is saying that he needs to pour out his wrath upon them. And he says this in verse 30. I looked for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap, in the breach that's in the wall, to stand in the gap on behalf of the land that would represent the people. Because God curses the land, not just the people. To stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so I would not have to destroy it, but I found none. So I will pour out my wrath on them and consume them with my fiery anger, bringing down on their own heads all they have done, declares the Sovereign Lord. My charge to you, church, is to be one that would stand in the gap. The enemy brings destruction to a city when he breaches the wall and they enter through the breach. God is saying, I am about to bring judgment on this city. I'm bringing it through the breach, this gap in the wall. But I see no man who is standing in there saying, God Almighty, we certainly deserve every bit of wrath and judgment that you pour out upon us, but have mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, God. Abraham did this, praying for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and those that were destroyed. But he said, if perchance there are ten righteous, would you spare the city? And God said, yes, I would. But there were not even ten. And God did bring his judgment. But Abraham was willing to stand in the gap for a people that I can only imagine he had little affection for. He knew their wickedness. But yet he would ask God, please, spare the people, especially the righteous. Moses, the people of Israel had sinned. And they had, they had created a calf while Moses was on Mount Sinai, getting the very words of God to give to them and make a covenant with the people. And they began to create and worship a golden calf. And God said, I am angry enough to wipe them all out. And trust me, God would be absolutely justified in doing that. But Moses, in Exodus 32... He stands in the gap for the people. And he says, God, have mercy upon us and relent from your wrath. Church, our nation is this close to the very judgment of God that would wipe us off the map. We have spit in his face and believed it to be a very righteous thing to do. We have called that which is evil good 
and we have declared it nationally. We have inscribed it as law in our books. And, and our president is presently willing to do whatever it takes to usher in all kinds of sin and say it is very good. Because if you, if somehow, if you speak out against sin, you are hating people. And I'm sorry, he is so confused. And, and our nation is so confused. We have truly lost our way. Church, this week, we need to stand in the gap. We need to pray that God would relent from his wrath because his hand is open and he is ready to pour out his justified judgment on this nation. He could, he could have us crippled in a matter of days financially. He could do this. But we must stand in the gap. I'm just going to close with this. Just a scene that there's been no movie, but a a book called This Present Darkness. And Frank Peretti describes a scene that is fixed in my mind as if I were watching the movie. And as Frank Peretti does so well, he describes the spiritual dimension so vividly. And the demons are wreaking havoc in the city. And then the pastor comes into the scene, and I'm trying my best to remember how it goes, but as he comes in, the demons tremble, and they say this in so many words, Oh no, it is the praying pastor. And they trembled. And church, I want to tell you this, that if you are known in hell as a praying a, a praying follower of Jesus Christ, the demons will tremble before you. And may I say that they were they are they are trembling before the name of Jesus that you are marked with. They tremble before prayer because they know that it's the that the power of prayer unleashes the power and the authority of God Himself. And they tremble because they know that this power and authority is greater than they are. And it is directed specifically to them. And God's heart, when it comes to revival, and when he comes, he not only stays his hand of wrath, but he pours out his grace unmeasurably as his people pray. And as hell trembles. This is what God does in revival. This is what hell fears. And this, this week, is what we are praying for. Can you stand with me? Church, this week, let's stand in the gap. Let's stand in that breach. God is not our enemy in which we are trying to appease. God is our friend. But he will bring discipline to his church. And he will judge a nation that has forsaken him. Father, we come before you. God, please. 
God, have mercy. You would be so justified in bringing utter, absolute financial ruin to this nation. We are ripe for judgment, God. Even in your church, we have despised your name in our finances. We have withheld that which you have required of us financially. We have loved money and we have loved things and we have sacrificed so little for you but so much for ourselves. This is your church, Jesus. God, forgive us. We have turned our backs on you and even within your church we have loved pleasure more than yourself. For this we repent. For this I ask God, please, Please have mercy upon your church. We would be so worthy of your hand of discipline. But I'm asking you, God, would you please wake us up? Wake up up this sleeping giant in America. Get us out of the darkness. Move us into the light, Lord. God, expose the sin in our lives, Lord. And and God, I, I ask that it would be done away with in our lives, personally, God, in our lives, not just corporately, in us personally. God, get rid of it. And I'm asking you, Lord, as we stand in the gap and we are, we are saying, God, have mercy upon us as your church. I am asking you, Lord, God, pour out your spirit on this nation and rescue us, God. We so desperately need the grace of God poured out in absolute abundance in our lives. Pour out your spirit in these neighborhoods that we're going to be reaching out to. God, those families that have been crushed under the load of guilt and, and the, the, the burden of sin that is just destroying their homes. God, come in and rescue them. And as we pray for them, show us how we can share Jesus with them. Show us how we can love them. Show us how we can be soul winners and that we, by your grace, could rescue the lost, the dying. That is our prayer, God. Jesus, thank you that you came to this earth for that very purpose, to rescue lost souls such as me. Jesus, thank you for how you demonstrated love to us and that you sacrificed. What a small token of love to you that we would sacrifice in this way called prayer. Desperate prayer. The Father, on the night that Jesus was betrayed and he poured out his life the very next day, he took the bread He said, this is my body given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. Father, bless this bread, this one body of Christ. I'm asking you, God, that you would unite us as your family. Those here gathered in your name, unite us as we would again fall in love with 
you, Jesus, by virtue of the fact that you, your body, broken for us, was sacrificed and laid out. What a demonstration of love. Bless this bread. In Christ's name. And on that night that he was betrayed, he took the cup and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Poured out for you. There is no sin that Jesus' blood cannot wash away. There is no guilt that leaves irremovable stain. But the blood of Jesus can wash it out. His love is that strong and that intense. His forgiveness Washes away every sin, church. Every sin. Father, we just confess to you right now. We've sinned. We've broken your heart again. But we cling to this one promise. That you scatter our sins. As far as the east is from the west. And that though in our shame we, could, we would want to hide from you, there is nowhere that your spirit could not go to seek us out and forgive us of all our sins. How vast is the love of God demonstrated in this, that he sent his one and only son, that he would die for our sins. You came to rescue your enemies, Jesus. And I was one. Thank you for your love poured out on the cross for me, for every single one of us. Bless this cup that it would remind us of that vast love. In Jesus' name, amen.